Alright, open your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 15. Open your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, we are looking at a series called Rise Up, Motivation, Resurrection Motivation. Living for the Lord is not in vain. In the past four weeks, if you look at 1 Corinthians 15, we've been moving our way through chapter 15. And here's where we've been. In uh, verses 1 and 2, we saw that the bodily resurrection of Christ and those who die in Christ is a gospel essential. And that if you need to believe this to be saved, and if you don't believe this, if you deny the resurrection, not only of Christ, but of those who follow Christ, if you deny that, then you're believing in vain. Your belief in Christ is in vain, and it's evidence that you've never been saved in the first place. That's what we saw in the first two verses. Then as we move down through to verse 11, obviously if that's true, then we need to hold fast. We need to hold fast, not just to the gospel, but to this essential of the bodily resurrection. And we saw that it's scriptural, it's historical, it's propositional, it's it's something to be proclaimed, it's relational, it's transformational, universal, and motivational. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons, seven reasons right there why we need to hold fast to this gospel uh, gospel essential. But the facts are, the people in Corinth were denying it. And so we saw in verses 12 through 19 that denying the bodily resurrection of all believers has this domino effect that is devastating. And we see in those verses, Paul just moves through those verses. Practically every verse is a domino that falls. Christ is not risen if we don't rise. The gospel message is powerless. Our faith is pointless. The witness of the apostles, they're all liars. Our sins are not forgiven. Our dead loved ones are rotting corpses that we'll never again see to love, to hug, to hold, to celebrate with. And our lives as Christ followers have to be some of the most miserable lives on earth because here we are suffering or at least seeking to serve and sacrifice and make sacrifices for something that will mean nothing beyond the grave. And so you ought to be at a place now, I hope you're at a place, where you've determined, I'm not going to be deceived, I'm not going to deny this gospel essential of the bodily resurrection. And we saw in verse 20 that if that's true, and this is what we saw last week, then we ought to declare it with joyful confidence. Because if you just take those verses 12 through 19, and reverse them, then here's what you get. Christ is risen. Our sins are forgiven. The gospel message is powerful. Our faith is purposeful. The witness of the apostles is true. It's absolutely true. There's hope for those that are facing death or have lost a loved one that's a believer. And our lives, well, they really are the most desirable lives because whatever we face now We have our best life coming. And all of those, all of those are motivation to be a gospel witness and just declare, my God is risen. And so we come now to verses 20 through 28. And that's where we are today. And what's going on here is Paul is done dealing with denials. He's done dealing with what ifs. He's done messing in a sense with what the Corinthians are playing around with, and he's doing what we've just talked about. He's going to now declare with confidence, here's what's really happening. 
and here's what's going to happen, and here's how it's going to happen in relation to the resurrection of the dead. And so in verses 20 through 28, he is just declaring, here's how it really is. So let's read that together. Look at verse 20. But now, he says, here's the reality. I'm done dealing with these what-ifs. I'm done dealing with your deception and your denials. But now, Christ has been raised from the dead. And there's that perfect tense we've been talking about. It happened in the past, and he's still risen now. He has been raised, and he is now risen. The first fruits of those who are asleep. And asleep is a reference to Christians who die, because when they die, their body lays there like our body lays in a bed, but one day it's going to rise, and our spirit's going to be reunited with our bodies, and it's going to be like waking up again. And so that's what he's talking about there. He says, For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. In verse 22, he says, here's what I mean by that. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. And now he's going to lay out how the ultimate goal of history is going to play out. And here's what he says. Christ, the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming, then comes the end. And the end there means the end goal, the, the ultimate goal, the ultimate purpose of God for all of history. And here's what he says. Then comes the end, the goal, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it's evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. In other words, all things are subjected to Jesus but not God the Father who put all things in, in subjection to, uh, to Jesus. In other words, God the Father is not subject to Jesus. He is still God the Father. And then he says in verse 28, When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him. And here you have the ultimate end, so that God may be all in all. Now, there's a lot in those verses. We're going to take two weeks to look at this. But here's kind of the main idea of that. I try to, okay, what's, what's all that saying? Let me, let me sum it up this way. What Paul is trying to say is this. Living for the Lord is not in vain because Christ's bodily resurrection is the first fruit. The first fruit. Now, we're going to talk more about what that means. Whoop, I can't spell. We're going to talk more about what that means next week. But, it, but for now, just a simple way of thinking about it, it, it's the first crop of a harvest that promises more to come in the future. Okay, so it's your first tomato in your garden. It's your first carrot that you pull up. Whatever that crop is you plant, it's the first one. And when you get that first one, what do you know? There's going to be more to come. There's going to be more to come. So Christ's bodily resurrection is the first fruit 
that begins fulfilling God's ultimate goal for all of history. And so again, in verses 24 through 28, you really have that laid out. Here then comes the end, the goal, the ultimate goal, and then he plays it out through verse 28. Now, we're going to take two weeks on this because uh, when you're talking about the ultimate goal of history, I think two uh, 45-minute lessons is not too much, okay? Uh, And besides, it's taken me this long to get my head around what's going on in this chapter in a way that I can explain it to you and hopefully will be uh, understood by you, but also practical. And uh, we, we just want to get our hearts around how does Christ's resurrection in the past and how does our future resurrection in the future, uh, how does that bring about God's ultimate goal for history? So today's lesson is going to focus on just two questions. What is the ultimate goal of history and how is the ultimate goal of history fulfilled? So what is it and how is it fulfilled? So let's dive in. Here's the first question. What is the ultimate goal of history? So I want you to take a few minutes there at your table and I want you to just discuss you know, what you think the ultimate goal of history is. You can just uh, spitball it. You can guess it. You can, you know, you just what do you put together what you've learned, what you've thought, just your own ideas. Nobody's going to be wrong or right. This is just to get you thinking in this direction. And you can use, you can use verses 24 through 28 to help you. So go ahead, dive in. Ultimate goal of all of history. If somebody walked up and said, what is the ultimate goal of life? or the ultimate goal of all of history, what would you say? Go for it. What do you think, Robert? <laughs> Robert, he should know. <laughs> All right. Sounds like you've done some good talking. I don't know what you were talking about, but at least you were talking, and that's a good thing. So... Uh, the ultimate goal of history, what is it not? Here's what it's not, okay? So, I, you know, I don't know what you, uh, good ideas I'd ask you to share, but I know none of you would say anything, so I'm not going to ask you. So here's some things that it's not. The goal of history is not world peace, okay? That might be something that some, some people may say. It's not, it's not me going to heaven. You know, sometimes we think so individualistic about life, and it's just all about me, you know, and it's about me going to heaven. The ultimate goal of history is not me and my loved ones going to heaven. You know, hey, I'm not that selfish. I think about those that I love, and I want them to be in heaven, and that's, that's what it's all about. It's not even all believers in Jesus with Jesus in heaven. Sometimes we think the goal of history is, is for all of us to be in heaven, and, and some people think of that as floating on clouds and, and uh, uh, strumming harps and, and just really a purposeless and somewhat boring existence, but that's not the ultimate goal. 
And sometimes you can get really theological and, and, and very biblical and say, well, the ultimate goal of history is God's kingdom here on earth. It's, uh, it's Jesus Christ's kingdom, the millennial kingdom, his thousand-year reign. The ultimate goal of history is the kingdom of Christ here on earth. And maybe we just really think in terms of heaven and hell. The ultimate goal of history is uh, that saved people are in heaven and that unsaved people are in hell, and, and, and that's kind of that's what it is. But none of those things are the ultimate goal of history. So what is it? What is the ultimate goal of history? Well, let me kind of play it out for you a little bit. The first thing I want you to think of when you think of the ultimate goal of history is God's kingdom come. God's kingdom come. That is one aspect of the ultimate goal of history. God's kingdom come to earth so that God's will is done on earth as it's done in heaven. Does that sound familiar to any of you? What does that sound like? It sounds like the Lord's Prayer, exactly. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew 6, just so you can see it in your own Bibles. There in Matthew 6, 9 through 10, this is how the Lord taught us to pray. He said, pray then in this way, Our Father, who is in heaven, holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There you go. That's one aspect of the ultimate goal of history, that God's kingdom come to earth so that his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, turn your Bibles to Revelation 19. Because in Revelation 19, which is almost, almost the end of the Bible, in Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16, we see how this is going to, play out how this is going to happen. So in Revelation 19, 11 through 16, here you go. Look at verse 11. I saw heaven open. There you go. Heaven, Father in heaven. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, many crowns. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except he himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike the nations, and he will rule them, there's the kingdom rule, with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God Almighty. And then here's 16, tells us what's happening. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So that is one aspect. And, we, and, and now turn back to 1 Corinthians 15. That's discussed in verses 25 through 27. Notice what verses 25 through 27. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. So that's the first aspect that I want you to think about. God's kingdom come so that God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. But there's a more ultimate purpose than even the kingdom. And it's this. And here's how I would put it. God's promise fulfilled. God's promise fulfilled in the new creation. So that his glorious presence will dwell with his glorious people in a glorious place, in his glorious place. That's kind of the promise throughout the whole Bible. From the very beginning, 
to the very end, this is God's promise. In Genesis 1, 26 through 28, God makes man in his image, male and female, in the image of God he makes them. And he tells them, be fruitful, be, multi- uh, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God's purpose from the very beginning was to fill this planet, even this universe, with men and women made in the image of God. So that he might dwell, just like he walked with Adam in the garden, so that he might dwell with his people in his place, in just and everything was glorious and everything was good. Remember in Genesis 1 and, 1 and 2, God saw it, it was all, and he said it was good. It was very good, because God's glorious presence was dwelling with his glorious people in his glorious place. But you know what happened in Genesis 3, right? What happened? Satan enters the picture, sin enters the picture, selfishness enters the picture, and Adam and Eve said, look, we're not going to rule over creation under God. We want to take the place of God, and we're going to rule our lives and run our lives without God, and that didn't turn out very well, and we're still all suffering the consequences to this day. And so in Revelation 20, so turn back to Revelation The good news is this, even though sin, Satan, and our own selfishness entered the picture, Satan can't hinder God's ultimate purpose for all of history. Sin cannot hinder God's ultimate purpose for all of history. It can cause a lot of pain. It can cause a lot of havoc. It can send people to a Christless eternity. But at the end of the day, it doesn't hinder God's ultimate goal. Because if you look at Revelation 20... And look at verses 1 through 8. God's promise is fulfilled. Look at Revelation 20 and verses 1 through 8. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. See, again, all of this is God's doing, coming down from heaven to earth, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, And he bound him for a thousand years and he threw him into the abyss and he shut it and he sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a a short time. And then I saw the thrones and them that sat on them and judgment was given them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image. And had, re- and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who is part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are completed... Satan will be released from prison. He will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth to gather them for war. And the number of them is like the sand of the sea. And they came upon the broad plain of the earth. And, 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 and it, just Satan is doomed. Okay, so from there on, the rest of that chapter, Satan's doomed. But look at, verse 20, look at chapter 21 and look at verses uh, 1 through 5. 21, 1 through 5, it says, Then I saw a new heaven. And a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. 
And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Again, coming down from God. Made ready as a bride adorned uh, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice in the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. God's dwelling among men. And he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there'll be no more, no longer be any death. There will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. That old creation, the curse and all that Adam and Eve brought in, all that's passed away. And behold, he who sits on the throne says, behold, I am making all things what? New. And he said, right, for these things, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give to the one who first thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things. And here it is again. I will be his God and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and the unbelieving and abominable and murders and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake of fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And then turn to chapter 22. In chapter 22, verse 1, Then he showed me a river of water and of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of the street and on either side of the river was the tree of life. That's the tree that was in the Garden of Eden. That was the tree that they couldn't eat of once they had sinned. Otherwise, they would forever be cursed in their sin, and God drove them out. But here it's all back. And and basically, chapter 22, the last chapter of the Bible, is simply the promise fulfilled. God's glorious presence dwelling with His glorious resurrected people in this new glorious, new creation, new heavens, and new earth. And notice... What it says there in verse 3, there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his bond servants will serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And then look at 5, and there will no longer be any night, and there will not have any need of light of the lamp, nor of the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, This, too, is spoken of back in 1 Corinthians 15. So turn back to 1 Corinthians 15. And notice that basically what I read to you out of Revelation is laid out for us in verses 24 through 28. The kingdom is good. Christ is going to come, and he's going to reign in his kingdom, and he's going to hand that kingdom over to the Father. And that is going to be the ultimate thing. Everything's going to be handed over to God. So. There's one more thing I want you to see. The ultimate goal of history is, yes, God's kingdom come, so his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And yes, the ultimate goal of history, promise is fulfilled that his presence would dwell with his people in his place with no more curse, no more sin, and filled with his glory. But ultimately, the ultimate purpose of all of history is this. God is all in all. God is all in all. It's all about God. It's all about God. And that's exactly how the Bible begins. How, began, began, began. How did, how's the...
begins. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. Now, just, just in the beginning, God. That's how it all begins. And you know how it all ends? In the end, God. God is all, and he is in all. You know, the classic statement, it's not about you. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about him. In the beginning, it was about him. And in the end, it's about him. And that's exactly what you see in 1 Corinthians 15. Look at verse 28. After he goes through and he says, here, here's how the resurrections are going to play out. But ultimately, here's the bottom line. It's the kingdom is going to come, but the kingdom is going to be surrendered to the Father. And in surrendering the kingdom to the Father, Jesus himself is going to submit himself to the Father. And when he does, the goal of that, verse 28, end of verse 28, is so that, read it with me, God may be all in all. The ultimate goal of history, everybody can remember this, is God. God in everything, and everything is about God. And if that is not exciting to you, then you don't know him. And I want you to know him this morning. If that's not thrilling to you, you're not living for him right now. You're not. Because if you knew him, and if you were living for him, you would be thrilled to know that the ultimate goal of history is God is all and in all. You see, we build our little kingdoms. We build our, our families, we build our jobs, we build our lives, and that becomes our kingdom, and that becomes our world, and everything is about us or those that we love. But the reality is we ought to love God, because in the end, it's Him. Romans 11.36, just show that I'm, I'm, it's not just one passage in the Bible. Let me give you this. Romans 11.36 says the exact same thing this way. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. The ultimate goal of all of history is that God is glorified in all things. And that's for our good. And that's for our joy. Now, this is really fast. I mean, I've been studying hard. I want to show you something here. We're in the last chapter of the book of uh, Corinthians. But Paul has been reminding the Corinthians of the ultimate purpose of all of history throughout this letter. That God is glorified in all things. That God be all in all. And he's done it throughout. So what I have there for you is I printed out the verses that show you that Paul's been laying this out. And he begins in chapter 2. And in chapter 2, he says, Look, Jesus is the Lord of glory, who was crucified by the rulers of this world, who were blind to the ultimate goal of history. Because look at what he says in verse 8. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If they had understood that the ultimate goal of history is that Jesus would be the Lord of glory, who would then surrender all things to the Father. They never would have crucified Him. So He reminds them. 
that the ultimate goal of history involves the Lord of glory. But then he moves on, and in chapters 5 through 7 of this book, he's rebuking the Corinthians for their practice of and approval of sexual immorality. And he's instructing them in the proper use of their body. And he talks about the about their singleness. We have singles here. And they're married. They're marriages. We have married people here. And he talks about the proper use of that of the body and, 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 and of sexual purity as a single and as married. And he says in verse 20, in the middle of this discussion, chapter 6, verse 20, he says this, For you have been bought with a price, therefore what? Glorify God with your body. He's taken this ultimate goal of history and he's saying, look, it relates to how you how you use your body. It relates right now to your marriages. It relates right now to your singleness. Then he goes on in the book and he keeps writing. And in 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 after uh, discussing abstaining from food and discussing overindulging in food, do these two things go on in our culture? Unhealthy abstinence, abstinence from food and unhealthy indulging in food. In the middle of this, and he even talks about being gluttons at the Lord's Supper. At the Lord's Supper, they would have a feast and, 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 and the rich people were showing up early and eating all the food so the poor people would come and there was no food for them. Here's what he says in, in, in chapter 10, verse 31. Whether then you eat or you drink... Or whatever you do, do what? Do all to the glory of God. He's taken this ultimate purpose, that God be glorified in all things, and he relates it to their food consumption. Or their abstaining from food. In our words, gluttony and dieting. And he says, look, whatever you do, whether you eat, whether you don't eat, whether you drink, whether you don't drink, do it all to the glory of God. Then he moves on. And he moves on to chapter 11. He says, in the midst of discussing about how to show the proper respect and submission in corporate worship, he comes out with this in chapter 11, verse 7. And I'm opening a can of worms, which I will not fish with today. But I will read this verse. There it is. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. What's he say? You know, I, I can't tell you exactly what he's saying there because no one really knows. You know, I mean, it's, it's more in depth than that. But here's what he's doing. He's saying, look, you got worship issues. You worship as a people. Bring this ultimate purpose that God is glorified in all things and bring it to bear on how you relate as men and women in the church and how you worship, how you pray, how you listen to sermons, how you right now are learning and studying the Bible, do it all for the glory of God. And then even here in the last chapter, uh, in, in cha or the next to last chapter, chapter 15 of this book, in his discussion of our resurrection bodies, look at verses 40 and through 42. Here's what he says. There's also heavenly bodies and there's earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. And he goes on and he says, so also the resurrection of the dead, it is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, but it's going to be raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. What's he saying? 
He's saying even in the future, in our bodily resurrection, it's all about fulfilling God's ultimate purpose, that He be glorified in all things. He's going to give us a glorious body. And we're going to, He's going to share His glory with us. And whatever we do in the future is going to be related to the glory of God. Now, what is Paul trying to get across to us? I know that's a lot, but it's what the whole letter is about. It's what the ultimate goal of history is. What's Paul trying to get across to the Corinthians and us? Here's as, as simple as I can make it. Are you ready? The ultimate goal of all of history is all things being submitted to him for his glory and our good. The ultimate goal of all of history is all things being submitted to him for his glory and our good. John Piper put it this way, and it's hard to improve on it. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And you could say it this way. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in submitting to him. I think I just improved on John Piper. Wow. That's biblical. Are you with me? That's biblical. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in submitting all things to Him. Look again at 1 Corinthians 15. Look at 24 through 28 again. And look at some words. First of all, look at verse 24. I'm just trying to prove what I just said, that, that, that God is most glorified when we are satisfied in submitting all things to Him, that the ultimate goal of history is all things being submitted to Him. Notice what it says in verse 24. Then comes the end when He hands over the kingdom to the Father, to God and to the God and Father. But notice when He's abolished all rule, all authority, and power. What, what does He mean that? It says, verse 25, He must reign until He puts all his enemies under his feet. Abolishing all those powers simply means they're all submitted to him. They're all under his control. They're all for him. But then drop down to verses 27 through 28. When you read through verses 27 through 28, which I won't do again, but count how many times subjected is mentioned. Six times. Subjected. 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 Subjected, subjected, which is just the word for submitted, subjected. Notice how, 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 how much of the world is submitted to him. Five times, five times he says, all things, all things. In case you didn't get it, all things. What I mean is all things. And by the way, all things are subjected to him until God is all in all. The ultimate goal of all of history is God's glory in all things. And we glorify God in all things by submitting to God in all things. That's why I call this lesson the S word and the ultimate goal of history. Because in our culture, submission is a dirty word. Surrender is a dirty word. And so often we relate it to uh, headship and submission in marriage. But if we would understand that this is what all of history is. Look, and if you don't like, if you don't like the S word, if you don't like the S word, you're going to be miserable in eternity. You see 24 through 28? You know, 
hey, if you're struggling as a Christian to surrender to Christ, get that settled today because it's going to happen. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father, Philippians 2. So God wants to be all in all. And so submit to God in your sex life, 1 Corinthians 6. Submit to God in your eating, both what you abstain from and what what you partake of and how much you partake of it. That's 1 Corinthians 10. Submit to God in your worship as a church here, as we pray, as we sing. You know, I think one of the most important things to do when you enter into our church as we gather as a body, and I'm not talking about the building, I'm talking about gathering as a body, is to check our hearts. Are Are we surrendered as we drive to church? Because... It's not good to come here and and, and kind of like sit and go, try to get me to sur- submit to that. You know, that's that's not what we want to do. We want to come and say, Lord, I'm yours. And I don't know what's, I mean, this is what I prayed this morning. Lord, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know who's going to come up to me. I don't know what who's going to be there, who's not going to be there, who's going to disappoint me, who's going to encourage me, uh, how I'm, you know, I, I just don't know anything, but I just submit, I surrender it all to you. Amen? Does that make sense? In our marriages, in our singleness, submit and surrender. If, if you're single, surrender your singleness to Him for His glory and realize I can glorify Him most right now by being single, not by wishing I was married. And if you're married right now, surrender your marriage and realize I can glorify Him most by surrendering as a man to love my wife like Christ loves the church and as a woman to respect my husband and show him the respect whether he deserves it or not, just like he's to love me, whether I deserve it or not. And believe me, you don't deserve the love that God wants him to give you, and he doesn't deserve the respect that you are to give him. But you don't do it because one another is deserving. You do it because you're submitted and you're glorifying God. Is that helpful? I just gave you $100 worth of marriage counseling for free, okay? Uh, in everything we do in our lives, whether you eat or drink, in all that you do, glorify God. And in everything in the future we're going to do in our glorified bodies, it's all going to be for Him. Now, that's the ultimate goal. I think you know what it is. That all things are submitted to Him for His glory. The S word in the ultimate goal of history. Submission and surrender is not a dirty word when you're doing it to the all-loving, all-powerful God who gave his own son to sacrifice for your sins, who rose and who reigns and who intercedes for you at the right hand of the Father, seeking your best because he knows that he is glorified most when you are most satisfied in submitting to him. Now, how is this going to happen? How is the ultimate goal of God being all in all going to be fulfilled? Well, the first step in the process is found in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. It's going to happen, but now Christ has been raised. The first fruits of those who are asleep. The submitting of all things to God. The process began with Christ rising from the dead. Now, what I have there in your notes is an overview of how all these things will be submitted to God for His glory and our good through his bo- through the process of bodily resurrection. And I hadn't thought about this before. As I studied through this, this is probably the thing that I took away that I myself learned this week. And it was this, 
that resurrection is crucial to submitting all things to God. Because the ultimate enemy is death. And that's what it says in our passage, that death is that last enemy. Well, how do you, how do you submit death? By resurrection, by overcoming it. If there's no resurrection, God's purpose isn't going to be fulfilled. God, does everyone die? Yeah, even believers. Well, how is he going to dwell? How is he going to fulfill his promise? How is his kingdom going to come when all his subjects are dead? How is he going to dwell with a people who are rotting corpses? The only way his purpose is going to be fulfilled is through bodily resurrection. You deny that, you've denied God's purpose for all of history. Well, what I've given you, and I wrote it out once so I could be clear in my own mind, but two, so that you would have it. And I've laid out here six, six processes through that. Now, I, you can read that. Here's what you're, here, I don't give you homework very often, but here's your homework for this week. I would challenge you to read through this and read these verses. There's not a lot of verses here. Don't be threatened by it. It's not a lot of verses. In fact, what do we say? We have six of these. You could do one a day. But if you did it all at once, you would get the big picture. And so next week, what we're going to do is we're going to go back through, through the passage, and I'm going to unfold this process for you. Now, today, I also gave you a, a, a chart uh, because, again, it helps me to visualize it. And what you see on this chart is that there are four major resurrections through which God is going to fulfill his purposes, all right? And uh, this is a, you know, this is a study of last things. If you go on our website and you look under, uh, on glenwoodconnection.org, you can look under about us, you can see our doctrinal statement. And this is the, our understanding of what the Bible teaches about the end times. And basically, the fulfilling of God's purpose begins first of all, with Christ's resurrection from the dead. And he rises and he's seated at the right hand and everything is subjected to him. But right now, we don't see it that way. It doesn't look like the Nepal earthquake was subjected to him. It doesn't look like the 21 uh, Egyptians or Ethiopian, or Ethiopian uh, uh, Christians who were beheaded. It doesn't look like that is under... It doesn't look like all things are subjected. But what did Jesus say before he ascended? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so all things are subjected to him, and he's working out his purposes. And he's doing that through the church age. But then the next resurrection is going to be us resurrecting. And that happens at the rapture. And it just unfolds out. You, you look at that. You study that. I'm going to explain it next week. At least I hope God will help me to explain it next week. But read through this process. God is accomplishing His purpose through resurrection. So what does that mean for us? I wanted to end with this application. God's ultimate goal for history can be progressively fulfilled in your life on a daily basis. So let me end with you asking yourself three questions. How often are you praying for God's ultimate goal to be fulfilled in this world? Jesus said, pray this way. Our Father who art in heaven, Holy be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day your, our daily. So at a minimum, Christ has taught us to pray every day for God's ultimate purpose to be fulfilled. How often are you praying for that?
It's the most important prayer you could pray for yourself, for others, that God's kingdom would come, that His will would be done in their lives as it is in heaven. Second question I want to ask you is how well are you living out God's ultimate goal in your daily life? I hit three or four areas today from the book of Corinthians. I couldn't hit them all because it says do all things for the glory of God. But what area right now is not submitted to Him? What area right now are you not living out for His glory and that you're finding your, your, your joy in surrendering that to Him? What area is that? I've given you some ideas there. And then finally, how much are you connecting your view of the world to God's ultimate goal for all of history? In other words, how often do you consciously think about specific problems in your life and you relate it to God's ultimate goal? I don't think we think about this a lot. Am I right? I think we tend to just think like the world does and we just tend to go on through life and we don't stop. And you say, well, how could I start doing that? Go back to number one, pray this way on a daily basis. Pray this way. And here's how I pray. Almost, I'd say 80% of the time when I pray individually to the Lord, I pray through the Lord's prayer. I use that as my pattern, as my starting point. But I often don't get beyond your kingdom come, your will be done in my heart as it is in heaven. Or in Amber's heart, or in Gwen's heart, or in this church situation that, that I'm dealing with, or this fear that I have, or this anxiety. Lord, your will be done. Your kingdom come. You see, and you start changing your thinking. Are you with me? Your kingdom come. Your will be done in my heart, my mind, my soul, my body as it is in heaven. That's the ultimate goal of all of history. Next week, we'll play out that, that process and look at the, the thing that everybody gets all excited about. They get excited about the end time. Well, this is the ultimate purpose right here. Let's pray. Father, we come, and uh, wow, getting our minds and hearts around something as big as the ultimate purpose of, of history is not easy to do, but you've revealed your word. It's there, but we've got to be reading it. We need to be studying it. And most of all, we need to be praying it back to you. And so, Father, I pray that your will will be done in each life here, just as it is in heaven. Let us find our satisfaction and joy in surrendering everything to you. But it begins one step at a time. It begins with that initial surrender. Here I am. I don't understand what it means. I don't understand how it all works. I'm yours, Lord. Everything I've got, everything I'm not, I'm yours, Lord. Try me now and see. See if I can be completely yours. And then it begins with surrendering specific areas that we're tempted and struggling. Father, may you be glorified in our lives as we surrender to you all things because that's where all of history is headed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.